Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. We are everyday people following Jesus every day. Uh, for launching us into uh, the message in God's Word this morning, we're going to hop in a time machine again. Uh, last week, we went to 1995, a little further stretch this week. We're going to go back to 1979. Uh, to a place that is very much not here and a church that is very much not the American church. Uh, in 1979, the Iranian church, people's best guess was there were about 500 Christians in the country of Iran. And that was actually up fairly sizably from what it had been 20, 40, 100 years earlier. And then, as some of you may remember, in 1979, a revolution happened, an uprising in Iran, and a hardline Islamic regime took over. And in doing so, they were committed to getting rid of everything Western and everything Christian. And so any organization that had ties to uh, America or any other uh, country we might be allied with uh, was uh, shoved out, sent back home, including missionary organizations that had been there for decades doing the hard work of digging in the spiritual soil and, and trying to plant seeds of the gospel. Missionaries kicked out, organizations broken up and sent home, Pastors killed, whole groups of people trying to stamp out Christianity in Iran. The official government coming down hard trying to stamp out Christianity in Iran. And for all of these missions organizations who had spent years or decades in Iran trying to shine the light of Christ in that place, it was obviously heartbreaking and discouraging and analysts around the world agreed that that was probably the end of the Christian church in Iran until something changed and we could somehow get back in there. In the years that followed, in the decades since, the exact opposite has happened. Uh, this is from a Gospel Coalition article uh, from a few years back, but my best understanding is this is still true uh, in Iran today. Despite continued hostility from the late 1970s until now, Iranians have become the Muslim people most open to the gospel in the Middle East. How did this happen? Two factors have contributed to this openness. First, violence in the name of Islam has caused widespread disillusionment with the regime and led many Iranians to question their beliefs. Second, many Iranian Christians have continued to boldly and faithfully tell others about Christ in the face of persecution. As a result, more Iranians have become Christians in the last 20 years than in the previous 13 centuries put together since Islam came to Iran. In 1979, there were an estimated 500 Christians from a Muslim background in Iran. Today, there are hundreds of thousands. Some say more than a million. Whatever the exact number, many Iranians are turning to Jesus as Lord and Savior. In fact, in 2015, the mission research organization Operation World named Iran as having the fastest growing evangelical church in the world, 
According to the same organization, the second fastest growing church is in Afghanistan. And Afghans are being reached in part by Iranians since their languages are so similar. Now, I was going to stop there because that's a super cool story. But then they tell stories of lives that have been changed by the gospel. And I was like, I can't not tell you these stories. They're too good. Three stories of changed lives. Qumran was a violent man who used to sell drugs and weapons. One day, a friend gave him a New Testament. After reading for five consecutive days, Qumran gave his life to Jesus. When his family and friends saw his transformed life over the ensuing months, many of them also came to faith. A church now meets in Qumran's house. Reza was a mullah, which is a Muslim scholar, who hoped to become an ayatollah, which is a leader of the Shiite sect of Islam that is the dominant uh, Islamic group in Iran. One day, while studying at an Islamic seminary in Iran, he found a New Testament that had been boldly left in the library. Out of curiosity, he picked it up and was deeply shaken. Over time, he fell in love with Jesus. Today, Reza is a trained church planter serving in the Iran region. Fatima's earliest memories were of being raped by her brothers. At age 11, she was sold in marriage to a young drug addict who abused her and then divorced her when she was just 17. Upon returning home, she was raped again until she decided to leave. On the streets, she heard the gospel preached and she trusted Jesus. In time, she married a Christian man. As they were receiving training in evangelism and church planting, Fatima felt called to go back home and witness to her family. Her entire family repented and gave their lives to the Lord. The first church Fatima planted with her husband was in her childhood home. The New Testament that changed these people's lives was written to a group of people that had a lot more in common with the Iranian church than the American one today. A church that was experiencing growth in the midst of persecution, maybe in spite of, maybe because of persecution. A church that was finding their courage in their convictions because they certainly weren't gonna find it in their circumstances. A church who was finding hope well beyond what their circumstances told them to believe and think and feel. They had no power, they had no political clout, they had no control, and yet they knew that they were loved and cared for by the God of the universe. And to that group of people, a church leader named Peter wrote this. This is 1 Peter 2, verse 11. We looked at this one last week as well. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Temporary residents. As temporary residents, this is not our home. We have been given a new life, an eternal life, as people who are following Jesus. Who have, who have said yes to Jesus being our Lord and Savior as uh, these folks did in our stories. We have entered into an eternal life that is starting out in a temporary home. 
if everything falls apart, if everything around us falls apart, if all the things that we typically count on and depend on fall apart, God is still good and we are still following Jesus home. And as we talked about last week, as temporary residents, it is so important that we resist being drawn into the kinds of things that Peter says wage war against our souls. It's so important that we avoid and resist the draw to things like power and control and self-protection. And we talked about last week how, how not, that's not only because it takes us off course, right? Like if we're supposed to be following Jesus, but we're drawn into following after, going after power and self-protection and control, we will, we will get off track. But it is also because these desires are easily manipulated in us. That our desire for power, for self-control, or for uh, self-protection, for control over what's going on around us, is easily manipulated. It's easy enough for somebody to come along and say, hey, let me tell you how you can get that thing, okay? Watch this video, buy my program, eight cassettes will tell you how to have all the power and control that you ever want. It slices, it dices, it makes french fries, and life will be easy for you. Vote for me, and you'll have all the power, the comfort, the control you might ever want. Or at least I will, on your behalf. (laughs) Now, I think this is probably true for most of our desires and emotions. That if somebody can connect to that that we're more easily manipulated. But I think the most glaring example of this and the the emotion that we feel that is most manipulatable, if that's even a word, it will be today, is fear. And I think the manipulation of our fear drives us to want power, control, safety, comfort. A seemingly unrelated story, we'll tie back together in a second. If you've been following the news over the last couple of weeks, you may know that NASA recently launched a vending machine-sized craft into space directly at an asteroid on purpose. Cue Aerosmith and the 90s movie music, right? Like, here we go, we're going to blow something up and save the world. Not really, because, well, for a couple reasons. One, this asteroid wasn't actually a threat to Earth at all. It's just out there harmlessly orbiting around a larger asteroid that is also not any danger to us. But what NASA scientists have figured out is that as cool as the explosion is and and the bouge sound that comes with it in the movie theater, taking one relatively large object and blowing it into a million smaller objects to fall on our heads isn't actually better. So what they're testing is can we just nudge the thing to go a different direction? Like if we hit it straight on with a vending machine-sized projectile, can we bump it to go a different direction. And so this asteroid is perfect for all their math calculations because uh, it's already orbiting around another one so they can pretty easily do the math then on did we bump it and move it off course. So they launched this thing and they got a direct shot 
everything worked exactly the way they wanted it to, and now it's like two months worth of math that I can't even imagine trying to do to figure out whether it actually worked or not, so stay tuned. I don't know that I'll be reporting back on it. Pay attention to the news, I guess, but just for that story. Anyway, uh, so... Why did we tell this story about NASA? Uh, three reasons. One, because it's cool. We just launched something at an asteroid. That's just awesome. That was very exciting. Uh, again, very the, the 90s movie child geek in me was just very excited about that. Two, uh, because I think actually the movie trope that this is highlights what we're talking about, about manipulating fear. Because movie makers like really all storytellers for thousands of years now, have discovered that if they can manipulate our fear, they've hooked us. Whether that's a horror movie, or you're not sure the hero is going to make it, or you're not sure the right couple is going to fall in love because he's supposed to be with her, obviously, and now he's flirting with that girl over there, and it's very scary for people. Actually, that's not true. That's not scary. That's why those movies are lousy. Anyway, the... Just... State and truth. Anyway, uh, or opinions. Um, so, so they've discovered that, I mean, storytellers have discovered that whether you're sitting around a campfire talking about the boogeyman or you're in a movie theater and you're scared for your hero as he goes uh, careening toward the asteroid, if they can manipulate our fear, if they can connect with that emotion in us, they can entertain us, they can move us, and they can profit from us. Third reason we're telling this story is because I think it makes an interesting analogy for what uh, news networks and social media networks do with us. So there's been some talk about how news networks and social media networks want us to be outraged. And that is true to a point. They would like to upset us. And the easiest way to do that is to manipulate our fears, to tell us, here's the thing to be afraid of, right? Be afraid of that side winning or that side winning, not so that they can scare us, but so that they can comfort us, right? So be afraid of that side winning. Let us introduce you to this candidate who will solve all of our problems and take care of all of your fears, okay? And it's important to know and recognize that news networks and social media networks are storytellers. They're telling a story. And I don't mean they're making stuff up. I mean, they're telling a story. They're casting a vision for the world as they would like it to be. They're telling a story of the world as they would like to see it. And we all have our own biases and perspectives, and theirs come out in how they present the news, how they fill up our news feeds, or, uh, whatever it may be. Now, they don't really want to get us outraged. Because outraged people do something. And that's not good for their bottom line. They just want to nudge us just a little bit. Get us, get us a little bit outraged or upset or afraid. Because they nudge us too far, we'll get off our couch. And we'll stop doom scrolling. And we'll start looking, stop looking for happy videos of kittens. And we'll stop coming back to them to find out which candidate is going to save us. And we'd actually do something. They don't want to do that. They just want to nudge us a little bit. Because they've discovered, as storytellers, that if they can make us afraid and they can manipulate our fear, that they can entertain us and they can move us, well, not too much, and they can profit from us. In 1979, if people wanted 
to create concern and fear over Iran. It would be helpful to tell a story to a nation of America at that point was still mostly saying we, we recognize ourselves as Christians. We, we belong to that larger group. That's, that's us. To tell a story of how the church was being stamped out about how this bad guy from the East that was connected to Russia, because in 1979, all bad guy stories were connected to Russia. Tell the story of how these bad guys connected to Russia were pushing out and stamping out democracy and Christianity. Now, I don't think any of the missions organizations who said, we think this might be the end of the church in Iran, I don't think they were trying to scare people. I don't think they were trying to manipulate people. I think they were just looking at what was in front of them and saying, this is what is happening. But... It is an example of how we can move people and move people's emotions. Today, so much rhetoric of Christians in powerful positions and Christians in politics is around the church being over if they win. We started asking this question last week. How should a Christian engage in politics? How should a Christian engage in politics? I think it is helpful to recognize that politicians are also storytellers, which again, I don't mean they're making stuff up and lying to us, although maybe, but I mean that they are telling a story of the world as they would like it to be, or actually in this case, more to the point, a story of how they believe most of us would like it to be because they want most of us to vote for them. And so they cast a vision of the world that they think we would like to see. They're telling us a story. And they know that their story is more moving, more entertaining, more profitable if it's a scary story. Fear is a powerful tool and they know it. Before we go any further, I do want to make sure that I say that fear in and of itself is not bad. I'm not trying to paint fear as an awful thing that we should never feel. Fear leads to wise choices. Fear leads to recognizing the possible negative consequences and choosing some more positive ones. I hope my kids have some fear in them. They might live to become adults. Like fear actually leads us to some wisdom, some safety, some positive choices. But we need to recognize when our fear is being played with and manipulated. And I think Christians should be the best at making this recognition. And for sure, should be the most immune and resistant to it. Now, let's, let's be real about the church's history. Over the last 2,000 years, the church has probably been the best at manipulating people's fears to get them to do what we wanted them to do. And that is a sad but true part of our story. We even have a phrase for it. We want to put the fear of God in people so that they will do what we want them to do. But we should be able to recognize it because, as we were talking about earlier, 
We should be pursuing what is true. We should have our vision locked on Jesus. And we should know that temporary residents don't have to be afraid of what will happen to us in this world. Temporary residents don't have to be afraid of what will happen to us in this world. Now, does that mean we're not going to go through anything scary or we're never gonna be afraid of what's in front of us or that those being persecuted in Iran just have no fear? No. This may mean going through some scary things, but we don't have to be afraid of the scary outcomes. We don't have to be afraid of what will happen to us in this world. We are warned over and over again. If that side wins, if this thing happens, you're gonna lose your rights. You're gonna be persecuted. Like somehow that's the end of the church if persecution crops up. That's not what the story of the Iranian church, the early church, or any of the churches who've been persecuted in between tells us. As Christians are marginalized in our society, as more and more people reject God and really reject the church. And those things are just statistically true. They're observable. They're anecdotal. We can, we can tell the stories. We, we see it. We know it's happening. It's just true. That compared to 50 years ago, 30 years ago, more and more people are rejecting the church and Christians are being more and more marginalized in the marketplaces and the politics of our society. And we're told that because that's happening, that we have to make sure that we have power and we have control and we have status in this society, that that's how we're going to win. Now it's the people who have power and influence and status who are telling us that we need to help them keep their power and influence and status. They're telling us that we need to be very afraid. Peter is writing to a group of people who are experiencing the kind of uh, persecution that the Iranian church is experiencing today. He's writing to a group of people who are being killed for their faith, who are watching their families be threatened, tortured, or killed, who are watching their leaders be killed or chased off, made an example of publicly. There are groups of people trying to stamp them out to make sure this movement doesn't grow. All these things that we are told to fear, to make sure that we have the right people in power so this doesn't happen. To those people, Peter writes this. This is verse 13, 1 Peter 2. For the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority, whether the king as head of state or the officials he has appointed, for the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right, to which we would naturally and appropriately go, well, what if they're not? <laughs> What if they're honoring those who do wrong and punishing those who do right? That means that they, that that's, like cancels out like a math problem, right? Like if they don't do those things, then we don't have to follow the commands in this. And yet the, Peter, the people that Peter is writing this to were very familiar with that scenario. Where the people were honoring those who did wrong 
and punishing those who in the eyes of God were doing right. So Peter, we're gonna skip forward a, a chapter for just a second and then we'll come back. Peter writes this in 1 Peter 3, starting with verse 13. Now, who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? To which the people who are reading this would go, well, apparently everybody, like lots of people actually. But Peter says, even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. Christ is the Lord of our lives. As everyday people following Jesus every day, that means every day we are getting in line behind Jesus and saying, you are Lord and I'm following you. You are leading me. You are making the decisions. You are the one that I am identifying myself with no matter what. You're the one I follow above everything else. And if Christ is our Lord, he's also our driving motivation. He's our fixation, that we fix our eyes on him and we follow where he leads, where he drives us, where he sends us, not fixating on our fears and anxieties and what they drive us to. That may mean following Jesus through some really hard things. Some of you have gone through some really hard things. And part of following Jesus is we're following his example. We're following the way he lived. One of the things Jesus did is he suffered well. The following Jesus means we suffer well with a hope that we can explain. We suffer well with a hope we can explain. We're focused on Jesus, not on our fear, even when life hurts. And I'm not talking about being naive. I'm not talking about pretending the hurt isn't happening. I'm I'm not talking about just blocking out everything negative and going, nope, it's all rainbows and daisies over here. It's where we put our focus and our attention. It's a lot easier to focus, I think, I find. It seems a lot easier to focus on our reasons for fear and worry. And to point our attention that way, to point our conversations that way, to point our posts that way. But fear and anxiety seem to me to only create more fear and anxiety. That as we focus on the things we're afraid of, we become more afraid. And as we focus on the things we worried about, we become more worried. And it starts to become overwhelming and it mushrooms up. And when things in our life start to become overwhelming, what we want to do is we want to box them in and we want to control them so they don't get any more overwhelming. And if I could just feel a little sense of control, maybe I wouldn't be so overwhelmed anymore. I just need to find some way to take control back. And our fear drives us to trying to control. 
and we lose sight of the fact that we are supposed to be people of hope. That because we're following Jesus, we have hope. And the hope is not in overcoming all of our fear and never feeling afraid. It's not in solving all the problems of the world. It's not in winning an election. Our hope is in the one who said, yes, in this world, you will have trials and tribulations, but do not be afraid for I have overcome the world. They say the world is going to hell. We're confident that Jesus has already won. We're told that if they win, there go our rights. And this is both sides. Every commercial you will see over the next few weeks is talking about which rights the other side is trying to take away. We're told that if they win, our rights are gone. Persecution is going to happen. Our lives will just be one misery after another. But our hope is not in our rights, in our freedoms, or in our platforms. Because as good as those things might be, the truth is they can be taken away. That's why that fear can get played with. Because it's true. Rights and freedoms can be taken away. Our hope is not in temporary things that can be taken away by other people. Our hope cannot be taken away. It has already been purchased by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so it is grounded in the hope that he gives us, in the truth that he has overcome the world. And it is grounded solidly in the light and love and mercy of God that he taught us and demonstrated for us through Jesus, through Jesus's death, Jesus's resurrection from the dead. Through Jesus, God has demonstrated how much he loves you and me and how much he loves them. He has shown the depths and the width that his mercy will go to cover our sins. He has showed what light and the darkness can really look like. And those things, the light and the love and the mercy of God, those are the things that we should also demonstrate as Jesus did in the midst of our suffering and hard times. When we fixate on fear and anxiety, we just get sucked into the game. We get sucked into playing the games of fear and anxiety because again, it mushrooms up and it gets overwhelming and we want to lock it all down with some sort of control. And we know we can be storytellers. The best way to get some control over the people around us is to manipulate their fears, to tell them to be afraid, to tell them why they should do things our way. And when we get overwhelmed, we get really uncomfortable And so we try to turn to structures and familiar things that make us feel more comfortable. So for people following Jesus, our tendency is to try to turn to the rules of God that make us feel more comfortable and apply them to everything and everybody around us. Now, not all the rules of God, because there are some of them we're very uncomfortable with, but the ones that we like, we will take those ones and we will apply them not only to our lives, but to everybody around us as well. We turn to control and power to overcome fear. 
And instead of turning to the goodness of God, his light and love and mercy for our comfort, we turn to the rules. Because let's be honest, shouting people down, taking control and applying rules that make us happy to other people feels a whole lot more like control and comfort than the mercy of God. When we do that, we start treating people as problems, as enemies, as things that we need to solve with our rules and our control instead of people to love, people who need to be shown the goodness of God. When we start losing the idea that the people we're engaging with are people, when they start being a problem and not a person, we lose the ability to show mercy and compassion to them. It will be one of the first things to go. Peter says, be ready to explain the hope that you have. A little experiment. Maybe you can reflect on the last week or maybe you can carry this forward into the week to come. Think about how many of your conversations, how many things you read online, how many things you post online have to do with something that you're afraid of or worried about. And how many of them have to do with something that gives you an actual eternal hope? Be ready to explain the reasons for hope because the truth is in our world, if you suffer well, if you suffer without bitterness and complain and blame and go insane, then they are going to ask you why you are that weird way. Because that's gonna stick out in our world today. Be ready to explain the hope that you have. We cannot explain our hope if we're busy slapping rules on people and trying to control them with our volume by shouting them down. We explain our hope. And Peter says it's significant how we explain our hope. In the very next verse. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good if that is what God wants than to suffer for doing wrong. Hey church, if, if we are persecuted, we're gonna be okay. I don't mean that flippantly. I mean, God is still good and we're still following Jesus home. We're gonna be okay. If we're persecuted for doing good, don't be a jerk. <laughs> I see too many people going, see, the world is out to get us. They're persecuting me. No, actually, you were rude. Uh, if you're gonna post things like that on Twitter, people are going to be upset. That's how that goes. Don't be a jerk. In a world where people are resistant to anything of God, where people are, are pushing back against the church, against anything that has to do with religion, trying to force your rules and control on them is exactly what they expect you to do. And at this point, I think they expect the church to do it rudely. <laughs> 
As we talked about last week, we are called by scripture to show the goodness of God. And Peter says that that is done with gentleness and respect. We lead with gentleness and respect. And I don't just mean that like if if you're in a position of leadership, I mean like we go first, we lead out that way. We start at gentle and respectful. Even if they are not being gentle and respectful back, we lead with gentleness and respect. And that respect applies to everyone, to everyone. Last week, again, we talked about how everyone is a person. And we have to remember that or we lose our mercy and compassion. So with that word respect in mind, let's go back to 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 13 again. For the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority, whether the king as head of state or the officials he has appointed. For the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and honor those who do right. It is God's will, that seems important, it is God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. For you are free, yet you are God's slaves, so don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Respect everyone and love the family of believers. Fear God and respect the king. Respect is the minimum, Peter says, to how we treat people. We treat everybody with respect, so then also the king, or in our case, politicians. Peter is is just sort of asking for a, a bare minimum level of like, hey, here's how you're supposed to treat people, so make sure you include the authorities in how you treat them. Treat them with respect, which... Uh, Side note, but I think an important one. Uh, F. Joe Biden and its little playful uh, companion, Let's Go Brandon, have no place coming out of the mouth or the keyboards of a Jesus follower. They just don't. It's not gentle and respectful. So that we're all on the same page, neither does hashtag not my president or hashtag not my 45 of 2016. We are to treat all people, including our leaders, with respect. Now, the Greek word buried behind that word respect maybe most accurately means to prize someone, to value them, to value them as people who are made in the image of God. Now, why would we prize them? Don't even like them. Because God does. Because they're valuable to him. Because they're valuable to Jesus and we're following Jesus. And we need to remember that Trump is a person and Biden is a person and Clinton is a person and Putin is a person. And we may not like them. We may radically disagree with them. They may do some things that we would all agree are terrible We are called to prize and value them 
So sometimes we talk about praying for the leaders of our country. And I think what we mean is, hey, please pray that they will do the things we want them to do so that we're more comfortable. Pray for them because they are made in the image of God and they are valuable to him. And pray that he would get a hold of their hearts for their sake because you value them. We need to see all people whether we like them or not, agree with them or not, as worthy of mercy and compassion and the light and love of God. So real quick, uh, let's go through these three levels of how we respond and engage as temporary residents in this world. Uh, First, we love one another. He says, love the brothers and sisters and the family of God. We love the other members of God's family. This goes beyond just prize and value. It means we care for, we serve one another. We actively love them. No matter whether we like them or not, no matter whether we agree with them or not, to believe that you are going to like everyone in this room all the time is pretty silly. That'd be wonderful, but it probably means you don't know them very well. I mean, you guys are great. I'm just saying, also human beings. Despite whether we like, agree, whether we would vote the same, we are called to love one another. Uh, A true statistic. I don't know if it's actually right. I just know it's actually a statistic. Uh, 70% of white Bible-believing evangelicals and now, an evangelical is a really hard term to define right now. Um, our denomination is part of the National Association of Evangelicals. So for the sake of this study, uh, this is people who say, I'm following Jesus with my life, and I'm following the Bible as the guidebook. Okay? White, Bible-believing, guidebook-following, Jesus-following people, 70% of them vote Republican over the last 10 or 12 years. of black and Hispanic, Bible-believing, Jesus-following Christians, evangelicals, vote Democrat. The Bible is not the problem. We are. (laughs) And we are called to love one another, no matter how we line up, how we agree, how we disagree, how we vote. We are commanded to love, serve, care for, listen to, to find out why we might have those differences of opinion, to love each other is as God's family. We love one another and we fear God alone. Again, fear is not always bad. Uh, Proverbs says that fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. And the word here where Peter says, fear God, uh, the, the Greek word is phobos, as in phobia, Like it really does mean fear. This isn't just like think highly of. This is be afraid of. Now, why why fear? Because God really is holiness. And he really is the ultimate power. And he really is the ultimate authority. And that should be scary for someone to have all of that power and all of the authority. 
but because he is the ultimate authority and because he has used that power to demonstrate that he is also the ultimate love and because he has used that power and authority to give us eternal life and we are temporary residents here, we don't need to fear any other circumstance or authority because God is on our side. He has called us his children and he has said, I am leading you home. We fear God alone. Our hope, our safety, our identity is not in this world or in its solutions, but it is in the God that the whole world should fear. And our message is that because of what Jesus has done and because of what Jesus has demonstrated, the God of ultimate power and authority is also the God of ultimate love. Our message is that he is a God of light and love and mercy. And we know that because of what Jesus has said and done and what Jesus has accomplished. And that is the message that we share by how we love each other, by how we fear God and how we respect all people. how we respect all people, including the king, the president, the senator, the county commissioner, including the troll online, uh, your uncle who gets a little too opinionated at Thanksgiving after a couple glasses of brandy, all people. We stay determined to show all people the light and love and mercy that God has shown to us. That because we have been shown the light and love and mercy of God, we are called to show it to others. So how should a Christian engage in politics? We suffer well. We share hope. We love each other. We fear God. We respect everyone. And we stay determined to make every effort to show the goodness of God with light and love and mercy to all people. So it's with God's help we try to do that. Let's pray. Father God, we are in need of your mercy. We are in need of your light to shine through us because well, we're, we're in need of your light to shine into us, into the dark places of bitterness and fear and anxiety that we hold on to. The corners of our hearts and minds that want to grasp for control and power and comfort. God, we need your light in our lives so that we can share your light with others. Father, God, would you give us a new experience of your love, some deeper experience of your love so that we would have more love to share with those around us. Would you make us people who are merciful and loving to ourselves, to each other, to the world around us.
because we know how much you love each and every one of us and them. Thank you for the way that you have showed your love through Jesus. Thank you for what you accomplished on the cross that we might have new life. We praise you. We thank you. We ask for your help. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thanks for checking out our podcast. You can learn more or connect with us online at easthills.org.